I hope that chorus stays in your heart because uh, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul was writing about in Galatians and in other places when he said, you know what? We are now children of the Heavenly Father who loves us perfectly and who's provided a way for us to know him and be in fellowship with him. And we're no longer slaves, he says, to fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. We pray that you would um, allow for those truths, the word that you have said, that we are precious, we are yours. You have bought us with a price of your own son. You have paid for that with your blood. You are willing to split seas. You are willing to slay lions and giants. So whatever's in your life right now, whatever that fear is that rises up in your heart. You're a child of God. If you've opened your heart, he says, you are mine. You need not be a slave to that fear. pray this in Christ's name, amen. Jesus gave some very disruptive words that we call beatitudes and blessings, and that's what we're about in this series, is how does these words disrupt maybe your own course of life, your own normal way of thinking at one point after Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he follows with this blessing. He says, all the blessedness of those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. You see, in, the, in, in, in mourning, there are always seeds of life. That in mourning, God is actually planting something within us so that at some point later and through it, we will experience his comfort. It's been said... If you want to know a person's character, find out what makes them laugh and what makes them weep. Think that for, about that for a second. If you want to know a person's sense of maturity level, their character, who they are, just kind of look at what it is that causes them to laugh and what causes them to weep. I was thinking about this and remembering back when I was a kid, we used to watch Red Skelton. Anybody remember Red Skelton? He'd put on these little skits. Some of you remember, some of you are way too young, and I date myself on this. But Red Skelton would just do this skit about what? It was one that was very famous at the time, a town drunk, right? (laughs) Some people think of it and already still laugh. But there's really something interesting about that. Eventually, that was taken off the air because what happened was people realized there wasn't just a town drunk. The whole town was dealing with alcoholism. And that wasn't a funny thing. And we began to realize that that's just not something in some sense to laugh about because so many other people, people we began to actually know, were beginning to struggle with it. And it wasn't just the guy out there somewhere. And whenever we have those kind of things that that come close to our heart and we have some kind of experiences or crises or things that go on, there's almost a reverence around the sorrow that is taking place in that. Except for like maybe late night TV shows, right? In late night TV show, they'll, at the expense of someone else's pain, they'll create humor, right? And, and what is the response when someone says a, something that's, that's humorous, but you know that you're not, it's really at someone else's pain. You, have this, you hear people go, oh, ouch, ow, right? In fact, if you think about it, I remember when 9-11 took place and we had, when that occurred, there was a sense that when that was taking place, late night TV shows almost kind of collapsed for a little bit. They didn't do much of anything, if you think about it. Letterman, Leno, 
the uh, Saturday Night Live, all those became very reverent because we were so in touch with the pain in the morning that was going on as a nation. You just don't laugh at those kind of things. You appropriately weep. And Jesus is kind of making that statement. As you mature, as you, if your spirit is alive to the things of God, there will be things in your spirit that you see in yourself and you see in the world that will cause your heart to break. Blessed are those, oh, the blessedness of those who mourn, says Jesus. And the mourning is usually around the things that break the heart of God. Appropriate mourning is when we allow our hearts to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And Jesus is saying when that happens, there is mourning that takes place at night and then in the daytime comes joy. There are seeds of life, seeds of joy, if you appropriately mourn. So this morning, I just want to share with you the blessedness of those who mourn. And my prayer would be that your heart and your spirit would kind of attend to some of these things. You might begin to see, here are some areas that maybe I need to grow in, or here are some areas that my heart really resonates with and I've experienced. And in some, it might be just new to you. And one of the first things we find when we, when we, when we, we look at this, this little beatitude that says, oh, the blessedness of those who mourn because they'll be comforted, is that mourning follows humility. It's a pretty natural thing that when you experience brokenness, when you are desperate, there's, there's a progression. Jesus purposely moves from the brokenness, the poor in spirit, which is really all about humility. Remember I said last week, it's that sense of desperateness. You're desperate. You have nothing. You are bankrupt. That's the word he uses here for poor, that when you are in that place and you see yourself in that place and you have no way to get out of it, when you come to a place in your life where you, for the first time, your spirit recognizes your sin and how it's actually hurt someone else. In fact, more than that, it's offended God and hurt God and you begin begin to realize that sin is broken relationship with you and with someone else. There is a sense that the appropriate response of that kind of desperate condition is to mourn and say, I am sorry. Mourning follows humility. It's very clear. You see it throughout Scripture. I, uh, you, you see it in this way. Um, how many are Seattle fans? It's not an appropriate time to make jokes about this, right? Shelly McKendry in her church um, is a Denver fan, and I made a joke about Denver's loss at the Super Bowl last year with regard to the... And, and she's still in mourning. So I, I know there's times where it's appropriate and times it isn't. And as you think about that, I'll just give you some scripture to kind of back it up. For 39 chapters, Isaiah goes through the damage that has been done by the people of God because of their sin. I mean, it's 39 long chapters in Isaiah. And it's in most people, when they talk about Isaiah, they do not talk about the first 39 chapters. Most people read chapter 40 to chapter about 66. Because it begins in chapter 40 after 
They have come to the sense of their brokenness, the devastation of their sin, which has removed them from the land. It's not only the God as they've offended, but one another that they've hurt and the injustices and all the things. And the land itself, in a sense, that we read in Ezekiel and others, spewed them out so that in a sense they are taken captive and they're in Babylon. And they're in this place, and in this place they come to the realization of what has happened. And in that humility, in that desperate situation, there's no way they can get back to their land unless God intervenes. So chapter 40 begins and it says comfort comfort ye my people and and i used to think about that comfort oh man what is it's more than i'm just putting my arm around you and saying i'm with you as you go on he's basically saying when you see your poverty when you see yourself and your humility he goes on and he starts to say you he says you're like grass that withers but then he begins to use these words that, that, that just point you to this incredible greatness of god and the comfort is not just he's putting his arm around you. He wants you to look at the God who you, who you serve. And God begins to address their poverty of spirit by pointing out to them in chapter 40 his incredible, unbelievable, unsurpassable, immeasurable, incomparable, inexhaustible greatness because he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow hands? How many of you can take the oceans and put them in your hand? Who has held the dust of the earth? in a basket. Who, he says, has understood the spirit of the Lord and instructed him? Whom did the Lord go to consult? Was, was God going to someone else to say, hey, you know, help me understand how to work in Kevin's situation here or Israel's situation? No, not at all. You see, mourning always follows a sense of deep humility, repentance, brokenness. And with that, he says, in the brokenness of your spirit, the kingdom of God. When you come to the end of your resources, the beginning of God's resources are there. And when you begin to mourn and understand what's occurred, you now put yourself in a place for God to not just put his arm around you, but to begin to work in your situation. And the comfort here, if you read through those 26 chapters of 40 on in Isaiah, is how he acts to work and save and redeem and to move in your place. It's a promise. In our lost brokenness and humility, we mourn, and as we mourn, God and others comes near to comfort. But mourning does something else. It forces a focus. What if Jesus wrote these words in, in the Beatitude this way? What if he said, Oh, the blessedness of those of you who go to funerals? I mean, that's where people mourn, right? Yeah, that might be a very specific way of talking about this. Well, the blessedness of those of you who are fortunate enough to go to funerals. Solomon writes some really quirky words in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. He drops down to verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. There's this sense, he says, the heart of the wise is in this place of mourning. There's something that happens in our mourning. If you allow this sadness, it allows for you to see your desperateness, and you, and you are in this place of humility, and if, if humility naturally follows this sense of mourning, this sense of sadness, this sense of sorrow, in this place of sorrow, something happens. Mourning forces focus. There's a way that when, if, you, if you take advantage of that place of mourning, it allows for you to see clearly with a sense of clarity like you've never seen before. That's why I think Solomon says the house of mourning forces you to examine your life 
Whereas the house of feasting, it's kind of like, hey, it's great. And as you stand around, you know, at the party and you have a drink in your hand, you're talking to one another and yeah, things are great. No one thinks real deeply there, right? It's just a good time. Yeah, how you doing? You talk about it. But in the house of mourning, you come to that place and everyone's sitting very somber with a sense of seriousness. Because of what is before them, it's disrupted their life. Death has disrupted their life. And forced them to take stock in it. So one of the things as a pastor, it is kind of a weird thing, but there's a part of me that enjoys doing funerals because I like the opportunity to speak to people in that place about what's most important. And not only do I like the opportunity to speak to people, it forces me again and again. You may not have that opportunity, but if you think about it and you go to a funeral, it's the opportunity for you to think very clearly with a sense of focus about your life. Every funeral that I'm asked to do is an opportunity to get people to think clearly about what really matters. Am I doing what's most important? Sometimes in a loss of job, you may be in a between jobs or maybe you're threatened about the loss of your job and it's one of those times where you start to get really sad and nervous and anxious and everything else and, and in that place, you're in a place where God can say, are you doing what you're really supposed to be doing? Some of the greatest changes in people's lives is when they come to that place and then they go, oh, you know, God, what should I really do? Another great question is, am I right with those I love? You go to a funeral and you have the opportunity to actually examine your life and go, there's a person here who has just left some, if you're just more on the outside of it, left a family. And you can ask yourself, right now, if someone who is close to me were to die, were to be apart forever, in that sense that we're apart in this life at least, are you going to live with a sense of regret? Mourning if it's used rightly, forces focus and brings clarity and it causes you to ask yourself right now, in fact, it may be causing you to ask as I speak about this, do I need to get right with someone that I'm not right with? If something was to happen and I didn't get an opportunity to ever speak with them again, am I going to live with a sense of regret? Am I holding on to bitterness? Am I not forgiving someone who I need to forgive? In, in fact, sometimes funerals are really important because it forces you to have focus on what might be most important in regard to your relationship with God himself. So even as I speak about this as a moment like this, it forces you to say, God, am I really right with you? Are you pleased with the way that I'm living? Am I giving you know, attention to you? Will I on my deathbed, or as I move to that point where I, and I have those opportunities, and I had one even this, this week, where I met with someone who's just breathed away from going to be with God. And I don't think he's asking or saying things like, I wish I would have been at work more than I was. I think he's probably asking things, thinking about things. It's causing focus on what matters most. Am I right with you, God? Will I be ready to see you? You know, people live with this sense that you're going to live forever, and then you hear these reports all the time of someone who is in their youth, and they tragically 
go to be with the Lord. And so some of you in your youth, I just say, you know what, the good time to stop right now and say, am I ready to meet God? Have I made things right with him? This whole idea of, oh, blessedness, those who mourn, forces focus. Tears have a way of clearing our eyes so we can see 2020 what's most essential. At some point in your life, you may have experienced the heartache of debt, and there's something about that place that allows for you, if you get real with it, and you, and, and you in that place of sadness, recognize how in bondage you are. And then you make the choice to get some help and someone come around you, and you say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to... Um, aggressively move out of this place. Some people have done that. Some of you are here, have done that 15, 20 years ago, and now you experience the comfort of having made good choices because you were forced to focus on your area of life, and God might be calling you in your own life with regard to your finances. And he's saying, you know, the, the credit that you're using is enslaving you, and your spirit fears it, and when you're ready to wake up, because when you're ready to wake up and you see your desperate situation, hopefully it won't be because creditors come to you, but you come to that desperate place maybe even ahead of time. You don't have to hit bottom, but if you hit bottom in your heart and you say, I'm going to stop right now, I'm going to get some help, and you begin to mourn about it, it gives you focus so that maybe now you can make a choice that later, as you make these choices, you will experience the comfort of God's presence through this. Or in broken relationships. Some of you have had broken relationships at one point in your life and you realized um, through either betrayal or even through your own complacency that you didn't give, you just kept taking from the relationship and, and it broke apart and at one point you had that place where you were mourning and in that place of mourning you had focus and that focus said, guess what? From now on you're going to start paying attention to the most important relationships, your spouse. And you may, some of you may have been able to come up here and talk about that, and you could talk about the comfort that God has given you through the process, through the decisions that have led you to a place where you're beginning to enjoy, or you've been enjoying for a number of years, a very rich relationship because you took stock of it. I could give you example after example. Because crisis and sorrow forces focus, which results in choices that over time allow for God's presence to come and bring a comfort into your life. So what does God bring into focus in your life right now? As I'm talking about this, is there something that God is bringing into focus? Mourning involves godly sorrow. Mourning is more than tears. Mourning is the, an attitude of the heart. In fact, it's more than just even an attitude of the heart. It's the right attitude of heart. There's an appropriateness to when we mourn and when we feel sorrow and when we feel sadness. And it doesn't always come with tears. Some, some, some people are very logical and analytical, and they go through that process, and you know, they're, real, they're, they're high on the T in, in that uh, Myers-Briggs thing, and, and they think it through, and they don't have a lot of tears. Some of you are married to someone like that, right? Because it's not so much tears. It's about a godly response to what you see, which is that, that sense of desperateness, that sense of sadness, and, and it's done in a, in a godly way. People mourn all the time. There are people who mourn all the time for all the wrong reasons. There is a sorrow that's merely selfish. It's not godly. It is important in the midst of your sorrow, if you're in a place like that right now, you need to ask yourself, how deeply do you understand what you feel sorry for? How often is your sorrow merely because you got caught? We're notorious as a nation for feeling and saying we're sorry. No, I was going to say Brian Williams, but you know, kind of a, just came to my mind. That just kind of like, I think some of the first phases I got caught, and then when they get caught, they press it even more. 
and then you feel sorry for not getting maybe your own way or not whatever. And then godly sorrow moves to a place, if it's appropriate, where you see your heart for what it is and it doesn't look good. But even more than that, you see the impact of your actions and how it has hurt someone else. Paul is quite clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. He writes about the difference between what I call healthy kind of sorrow or regret versus one that's unhealthy. I'm no longer sorry, he writes in verse 8, that I sent that letter to you, though I was very sorry for a time. I'm kind of going, okay, I sent a really harsh letter. You know, I'm really sorry that I had to do it. But he says, though I was sorry for a time, realizing how painful it would be for you, but hurt, it hurt you only for a little while. Godly sorrow is for a while so that there is repentance and correction and transformation in, in your life. Now, he says in verse 9, I'm glad I sent it. Not because it hurts you. It's not, God doesn't hurt us, bring the truth in, sometimes bring circumstances in, sometimes disrupt our lives in order that he's trying to go, see, I just, I'm mad at you and I'm going to let you pay for it. No, he allows sometimes the consequences of our decisions to come to a place or he allows sometimes for things to come into our life because he brings in hurt to startle us into an awakeness of the reality of our actions. And I'm glad I sent it. He says, not because it hurt you, but because the pain turned you to God. It was a good kind of sorrow you felt. The kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that I need not come to you with harshness. In verse 10, for God sometimes uses sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek eternal life. We should never regret his sending it. That disruption is not a bad thing, says God. But the sorrow of the man who is not a Christian, one who is a follower of Jesus, is not the sorrow of true repentance and does not prevent eternal life because it does not change the actions and attitudes of the heart. Christ-like sorrow turns a person to God. Worldly sorrow turns a person to self. Christ-like sorrow turns a person to God, causes you to recognize the pain that you've caused others in God, and with it, God comes with comfort. Worldly sorrow turns you to yourself, and the pain is about yourself, and with it is pity. And pity that is just pure pity, that is self-pity, changes nothing. Your circumstances might change. People might say, okay, that's good. I, you know, we've worked through it. Time goes by. But it hasn't changed the character. Godly sorrow leads to true change in your behavior. And here's the test of whether your mourning is on target, okay? Here's the question I want you to think about. When you feel sorrow, when you are truly sorry, are you sorry for yourself and your pain, or are you sorry for the pain you caused someone else? Godly sorrow moves you closer to God. It moves you closer to others because you want to move away from the behaviors that's caused that pain. Someone wrote this, and I think it may even be um, from the message. I can't remember when I wrote this down. As a result of godly sorrow, you're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. You come out of this process of mourning with a purity of heart, which is what Jesus will talk about because he's progressively moving into these disruptive beatitudes. And that leads to individual change. So what I want to share is you, there's a godly sorrow, which is an individual godly sorrow. But you know what? There's also a corporate godly sorrow. Did you know that? That we're called to corporately um, feel a sense of sorrow. 
There are times that we are together as a family or a church or a nation where we may individually not have participated directly in the sins, but because we're a part of humanity, we indirectly participated and we directly participate in a sense of identification with, with sorrow and the pain that's been caused. Godly sorrow may involve identifying with a sin that may not be your own personal sin, but maybe the sins of a family or a sins of a nation. Daniel, a guy in the Old Testament who has never, we never read in Daniel that a sin was recorded of him, and the guy actually is thrown in the lion's den because um, he did nothing wrong. In fact, Daniel is a guy of whom it is said his governmental peers were so threatened by him that they sought, here's the scripture, they sought to find grounds for charges against him but could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis of charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. This blameless, incorruptible man, Daniel, prays to God when he understands, though, at a certain point that, that God is going to deal with Israel and move them possibly back to their land from this land of Babylon where Daniel and, and the people are in the land of Persia at this point. And as he's beginning to pray about it, he realizes in Here's his prayer. This man, as we read, never sinned. It's never, he obviously sinned because he was a man, but it's not recorded in Scripture. In fact, his life had such character and was so blameless they couldn't even find anything in him. Here's Here's what Daniel says. He begins to identify with him. He says, Oh Lord, great and awesome God, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from the commands of your laws. We have not listened. Mourning involves sometimes a godly sorrow where we identify with the sins of our nation. We identify the fact that we as people have created institutions that have created pain in people's lives. And our world's rebellion causes us to mourn corporately, not just individually, but we identify and we say in the same way, Father, we mourn for those who hunger and experience poverty and are in sex trafficking and are in justice against the poor and homelessness. God, we, we mourn and we cry out to you and we ask that you would move, that you would begin to take stock of our, our repentance and our prayers for us as a people. I think that's happening somewhat around our nation and it moves us to action. Mourning is also a process. It's possible to become stuck in your mourning. Good grief feels the weight of the lost injury you've caused. But it never gets stuck. The Bible never says stuff your pain or your loss. It always causes people to process. So there's a story at the end of Deuteronomy. It's about the life of Moses. Moses is this guy who's lived this incredible life. He's led these people for 80 years. He's now coming to the end of his life. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we find that Moses dies. And, and we're told that the loss was immense. The sorrow for the people was, was overwhelming. Can you imagine the people there going, this leader who has led us, what are we going to do now? And the answer is, duh, what you, your forefathers did. Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, they trusted God. God didn't die, Moses did. Don't we all feel that way when, when someone who's just so important to us, we lose and we go, oh, the world's coming to an end. Here's, what, here's what's so interesting. God doesn't say, you know, you know what, Moses died, I'm your God, what's wrong with you? He doesn't come. He says to him, you know what, mourning is a process that you need to go through. You can't just get stuck here and stuff your, your, your stuff. You've got to actually move through this. And so God says, listen to this, he says, take 30 days to mourn. If you read chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, verse 5, he says, And Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. And the Israelites, verse 8, grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. 
So when Jesus says all the blessed of those who mourn, he's also saying those, this is a process you need to go through. Take 30 days and mourn together. Process this, lie, this loss. In a sense, he's saying what's in here, you can't stuff it because if you do, it's going to go sideways. You can't stuff it because if you do, it will never be processed. Get out what's in here, out there. And it really makes sense of this proverb. He's basically saying the only way out is through, right? And through always will cause pain. And who likes pain? And so he says, take 30 days. I want you to process this. I want you to move through this because the only way through it is through pain. It's not under, around. You can't sweep it under the rug. So you're in a place right now where you're mourning and God is saying, get in touch with that. Go ahead and move through it, but don't stuff it. Don't stay there. And one of the simple reasons Jesus says, blessed are those who are mourning and attaches this promise for they will be comforted. It's just a simple thing when you think about it. He's basically saying, if you get what's in here out there, it gives people an opportunity to come around you and comfort you, right? Some of you are living with such pain that you stuff for a long time that you're in a place where you, you've, never, you, you've, you've been told, don't ever tell anyone this, this secret, whatever it is, you need to keep inside. And what happens is if you keep it in here, it just leaks out and it, it disrupts your relationships, and God says there's a mourning that needs to be processed. And the, the way we often process it in a way that's healthy is you get what's in here out there so those who are out there can come around and God can use them to comfort you. And then he says, you know, when you do go through the process and you realize that the only way out is through, it's not around, it's not under, you can't back up, right? He then says once you begin to process, you move through it, you invite others in, he then calls you to move on. In fact, what I I think is interesting as I was reading through this, he says, mourn almost in a sense and get over it. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 7 warns against too much sorrow. At one point he says, he says to the people who have they've they've actually disciplined a person and he's afraid now the discipline is going to turn into a harshness that will keep a person in the place of sorrow where he'll be stuck in his sorrow and he'll be stuffing it. He says to them, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There are people who, in sorrow, are sick unto death. And so Deuteronomy ends with Moses being buried in Moab. And if you just flip the page to the next book, the next book is Joshua, and it begins with these words, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all the people, get ready to cross the Jordan River. Isn't that interesting? Okay, gone through the morning, you've processed it, you've worked through it, now move on. It's time to move forward. It's time to forgive. And in some of your cases, it may be that you've got to get out what's in here or out there so that people can come around it so that you can get to the place because sometimes it's really difficult to forgive ourselves without having witnesses around us who say, yeah, that, I hear that, I see that. And you need to know that not only God forgives you, but you need to make the choice to forgive yourself. Because mourning eventually moves out and moves on. There's a, there's a, there's a story, Garrison Keillor, um, and it, some of you are familiar with Prairie Home Companion, has this great story in, in a book called Leaving Home. Anybody heard about Larry the Sad Boy before? 
Larry the sad boy, he talks about, was at this church who was saved 12 times in the Lutheran church, an all-time record. This is a guy who's having trouble moving on, forgiving himself, realizing God's forgiven. He says, between 1953 and 1961, he threw himself weeping and contrite on God's throne of grace on 12 separate occasions. And this in a Lutheran church that wasn't evangelical, had no altar call, no organist playing just as I am without a plea, while a choir hummed and a guy in a shiny hair took a hold of your heartstrings and played you like a cheap guitar. This is the Lutheran church, not a bunch of hillbillies. These are Scandinavians. And they repent in the same way they sin, discreetly, tastefully, and at the proper time. And they bring a jello for salad afterward. I just, I got to read a little bit more. Larry the sad boy came forward, weeping buckets and crumbled up at the communion rail to the amazement of the minister who had delivered a dry sermon about stewardship and who had now had to put his arm around this limp, soggy individual and pray with him to see if he had a, a ride home. He did this 12 times. Even we fundamentalists got tired of him. Granted, we're born in original sin and are worthless and vile, but 12 conversions is too many. God didn't mean us to feel guilt all our lives. There comes a point when you should dry your tears and join the building committee and start grappling with the problems of the church furnace and ch- church roof and making church coffee and be of use. But Larry kept on repenting and repenting. Now that's funny. And yes, we're convicted of our sin, and we, we, we will go through periods of sorrow and conviction, but at a certain point, in certain areas, in certain ways, there's a point where you actually move on and accept the forgiveness of God, and you get out what's in here so that God can bring comfort, and you can bring others around you to help you in that process that you might move on. And that's why I think Jesus says, Oh, blessedness, oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. Because you get the opportunity when you come to the end of your resources, to be at the beginning of God's resources, and when you come to that place, you get the opportunity of God coming in, not just putting his hand around your shoulders, but you have the opportunity of God beginning to move in your life. And guess what? If you're in that place, God's ready to move. I would just want to tell you, if you're processing and you're appropriately mourning and moving through it, or you're helping someone, just know this, you are blessed.